Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 511 of the podcast and it is Friday the 9th of October 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking to Michael Leron about mental models for writers and empowerment and lots of things actually. We have a wide ranging interview uh, from how he writes a lot of books on a mobile phone, which I was particularly interested in, why mindset is so important and how we have to face our fears to break through creative challenges, mental models for writers, the empowerment of the independent author, why cover design is such a common question, how we can support authors of colour and also how Michael's six-year-old daughter is a pro with voice search and interacting with audio and voice first devices and we talk a bit about how that might shape the future and remember you can listen to podcast episodes with Michael and separately with me on the Ask Ally podcast Uh, just search Ask Ally A-L-I on your podcast app and uh, Michael does one a month with Orna Ross uh, as do I so that is available as well. So in publishing news, obviously, I've recently talked about my own thoughts on subscription and how they are inevitable as they represent great value for consumers, uh, but also they will impact author income as they have done for musicians. Mark Williams has just done a great roundup of the current state of subscription models that impact indie authors on the Ally blog at selfpublishingadvice.org. I highly recommend, obviously I'll link to this in the show notes, but I highly recommend you go and look at this because I, especially if you're in KU, you might not have an idea of how many options there are. He notes that it is possible to make money with subscriptions as outside of the Amazon ecosystem, there is no exclusivity. So uh, he says, when an indie puts titles into script, we can also do so into Storytel, Next Story, BookBeat, 24 sy- Symbols, Scooby, Bookmate, Audioteca, Kobo Plus, Ubook, Lajimi, Liamos, Nublier, Perligo, Biddy, and that's even before we start looking at the micro subscription services in countries like the Czech Republic, Bangladesh, Norway, or the specialist subscription services like Epic, for example, that is used by 20 million children in the US alone. So there's loads of information in this article about all the different subscription services there are. And of course, most of us, like I do, get into these services through Draft Digital, Publish Drive, Smashwords. Uh, you can get into on the with audio through Findaway Voices, for example. So you can do this if you have the rights to distribute your books uh, widely. Also, the article talks about the incredible growth of Storytel and NextStory in particular. And in fact, uh, interesting to see that Storytel's CEO is the keynote at Frankfurt Book Fair's audio track. Now, this year it's all online, but last year when I was there in person, I think it was last year, (laughs) time is just 
weird at the moment, but last year, uh, Spotify's CEO was the keynote. And that's when I realised how powerful Spotify's algorithms were and how their discoverability engine would be a game changer. And I switched over from Apple Music and Apple Podcasts to Spotify a year ago, basically. And that was very interesting. Spotify, obviously now starting to look at audiobooks and that Storytel is the keynote this year, really shows that's where they're seeing the growth and the disruption, I think. So lots of opportunity on the horizon. And Mark's article ends by saying, the global book market isn't just bigger than we think. It's much bigger than we think. And it's still growing. So clearly, I've been saying this for years. (laughs) But often, as per usual, I say things many years before they actually happen. (laughs) So I'm always early. It's ridiculous. But the mature digital markets of US, UK, Canada and Australia, they're pretty stable, but everywhere else has barely started yet. So very exciting times if you have the rights to publish your work globally. And like literally, you if you go through a distributor, you, it's not like we're tracking all these different income streams. You get paid in one chunk uh, from all of these places. I literally don't know how many services my book is on, my books are on anymore. I just get the money. Yay! <laughs> so my personal update this week, Tree of Life has gone to my editor. And uh, that was yesterday. And I may have had a couple of glasses of wine to celebrate. Uh, it's also gone to a botanist for an expert beta read. And I only ever have beta reads by experts in particular areas. I don't send my books out to general readers anymore. I want a particular expert opinion on an area. And this one has a lot of plants in, both good and bad. This book has actually been quite a different process for me. I would usually, at this point, on the day I send my book to my editor, that's when I usually have written the blurb or the sales description and uploaded the details for the pre-order. So I normally do a pre-order once I finish the draft. This one, (laughs) after the episode with J.D. Barker back in episode 494, I decided to the sales description, which is what JD does. He doesn't outline, but he does write sales descriptions. And it's not so much an outline as we talked about last week with Katie Wyland. What JD does is more like this is an idea that has enough legs to become a good novel. And uh, I just heard on Writers Inc, JD's podcast with Jay Thorne, that JD hit the New York Times list in his book with James Patterson. Uh, That just hit this week or last week, depending on when that came out. (laughs) But it, it is proof that JD Barker knows what he's talking about. But essentially, This time I wrote that sales description early and it actually very much helped because I thought I was going to go down a particular track and I didn't. And the idea that I had when I was writing that description is actually what helped me craft the end of the book, which ended up quite different to what I thought it was going to be. I love the discovery process and I'm really happy with this book. I'm back at the point. It's been up and down as these things are. But right now I'm really happy with it. I'm like the ending. I'm like, yes, that is a good ending. And I like endings. I'm someone who pretty much, I like series like a Jack Reacher or James Rollins or books that I read in series, but I like each book to be a standalone. So all of my books are essentially like a standalone. You can read them on their own or they are, you can read the whole series. But with this one, I was like, yes, that is good. And it's packed full of fascinating research, including 
Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean, which is pretty cool. I managed to get that in there. And the expanse of the Portuguese Empire. And I started the book in Amsterdam, which I uh, went to Amsterdam a couple of years ago now. We did a research trip to Amsterdam. Lisbon last year, that's in the book. Places I visited for research. And the rest of it has been written really from online research. Normally, I would do at least one more research trip, <laughs> physical research trip. Um, it's also quite timely from an ecological perspective. So the the taglines are the an ancient manuscript that leads to the Garden of Eden, a seed that can restore the world to nature, but only by destroying humanity in its wake. So this kind of uh, push-pull dynamic between, yes, nature would do much better if the humanity was completely gone and what we're doing uh, to cause a lot of that. So <laughs> very much have enjoyed my research with this book. So I, yes, I wrote that sales description and then I put up the pre-order a couple of months ago now. And when I got to about 40,000 words, I did a reverse outline. I talked a bit about that last week and that helped me get to the end very happy with it. And I put my research and my bibliography in my author's note. I always do that. And I'm a, as a reader, I love author's notes. And in fact, I would encourage you, please include an author's note. Those of us who enjoy them, I just love them. And I, I will often use them to um, start my own research or go and buy the books that authors recommend. And I've also ended up giving lots of money to tree planting charities during the creation process for this book. And uh, yeah, because I learned some things about what we're doing to the planet. And I was like, right, I think tree planting seems like a good idea. So uh, Tree of Life is available for pre-order and it will be out ebook and print on the 9th of December and in audio in early 2021. So I will also, as this goes out, in the week this goes out, I'm heading off for what is my next, hopefully, research trip and uh, novel. So I'm going to walk from Southwark in London to Canterbury. And that is an ancient pilgrimage. It's about a thousand years old. Yeah, around a thousand, something like that. 900 years old. Uh, no, 750 years old. <laughs> it's quite old anyway. But it's also the uh, route that they took in the Canterbury Tales of Chaucer. I studied Chaucer at school many British people would, but I'm sure many other people have heard of Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. But essentially, it's an ancient pilgrimage route that I'm going to walk. It will take, I think I've got five full days of walking and the sixth day I'm in Canterbury, or it might be six and seven. But essentially, if we are not locked down again, that's what I'll be doing. If we are locked down again, then it won't be happening. But uh, at the moment, I'm just going ahead and planning it. And hopefully that will turn into a travel book about the route, a pilgrimage travel book, and with a bit of memoir stuff in. And then it will also turn into the basis for my next arcane novel about uh, the relics of Thomas Beckett. So I'm pretty excited about that. I really hope I can do that. Next week's show, I will hopefully be scheduling early and you will you won't hear about it for a couple of weeks, but I'm very excited, so we shall see. In useful stuff, the Alliance of Independent Authors has a free online self-publishing conference coming up on the 17th and 18th of October 2020. This one is focused on tools and technology for indie authors. Sessions include Dave Chesson from Kindle Pernod on email marketing, how to sell more books with BookBub, uh, sessions from Pro Writing Aid, Ingram Spark, things on Amazon ads, 
about on- online author events, how to run them, Kalytics, Kobo, voice tech, AI, using Plotter, uh, publishing wide, social media, and more. Like, really great lineup. Go to selfpublishingadviceconference.com and uh, check that out. You can register to attend live or get the replays. I was also on the revamped Story Studio podcast this week, talking to Sean Platt and David Wright and Neve about the state of the self-publishing industry and what we're all excited about right now, including longevity in the market. So it's quite funny that I've actually known Sean and Dave and Johnny, the third of the trio, for over a decade now. And we've been on each other's shows over the years. I hung out with them in Austin, Texas a few years ago. And in fact, I used to read Sean's articles and I did one of Johnny's courses before they had ever written books. And uh, together, we've all seen the ups and downs of the industry. (laughs) We've made our mistakes and learned things and adapted. And so it's really good to chat with people I've known for so long. And you can just search your app for Story Studio Podcast or go to storystudiopodcast.com and they've got episodes coming up with lots of other indie names, big indie names over the last couple of weeks talking about the sort of current state of the self-publishing industry and what's coming. So check that out, Story Studio Podcast. So thanks for all your tweets and emails and comments this week. Everybody loved Katie Wyland last week, KM Wyland. I think the craft episodes really do get a big response. So I'm really happy about that. I certainly find Katie's work to be excellent and recommend her books to everyone. So I'm glad you all really enjoyed it. Just a couple of people said, uh, so HD Coulter said, listening to the show while walking to work, listening to KM Wyland, huge fan of both, massively agree about loving book research for my first historical novel, which I'm self-publishing in November due to the Creative Pen podcast. Welcome HD to the world of indie. Sarah Madison says, Joanna, your episodes are so often spookily timely. I think the universe must work through you. This was brilliant. And Katie and your interview with KM Wyland. I just did your what are the worst 10 things that could happen to X character brainstorm and had an aha moment. Thank you both. Good to hear. Emily Robertson says she really enjoyed the show last week when I talked about the 50k. She says, I got so much out of this one and it's making me want to sign up for an ultra marathon in the UK someday. It's surprising how many of you have actually messaged or emailed to ask me about doing ultras. So it does make me think that perhaps I need to do a podcast on that, maybe on books and travel, something I'm thinking about. But because I've got this trip coming up, I'm not going to do it right now. But uh, there are some, it is a great way to see places. Yeah, there we go. And uh Oh, just two more pictures that people sent. Christy Garrett sent me a picture of, she says, I love Fungi too. Here's a little Menahune village I came across. Is that Menahune or Menahune? I came across on my walk in California, which is lovely. And remember, if people pronounce things in inverted commas wrong, it's because they are readers. And uh, I always like that. I always think that's important. (laughs) And finally, thanks to Maria in the Netherlands for a wonderful picture with her bike, who enjoyed the interview with Katie and listened to it while giving my bicycle its annual pre-winter clean. Your intro about the 50k made me realise I should do more cycling. It's outside my comfort zone, even though I'm Dutch. (laughs) Great. Sounds like fun. 
lots more comments. Uh, thank you so much to everyone. It really obviously was a, a podcast episode that resonated. So you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or leave a comment on the show notes or email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Let me know what you think of the episodes or send me a picture of where you're listening in from. I always enjoy that. So today's show is sponsored by Drafter Digital, who really embody the principle of empowering indie authors, which is the theme of today's episode. I'll play a word from Kevin Tumlinson in a minute, but also just to say I use Drafter Digital for publishing to multiple platforms, including all of those subscription sites. I particularly love their library distribution, and especially in this time in history, in an era where lots of people are struggling, libraries are going to be more important than ever, especially the digital ones, because more and more people are moving to digital reading because they don't have to go physically to a place. They don't have to um, touch things that other people have touched and especially uh, older people or people who might be uh, at risk. And we want people to be able to access knowledge and entertainment even when they don't have any money. And when I was growing up, my mum was a single parent. And for a while after we moved back from Africa and she reskilled, so she she we were on benefit for a while and I spent a lot of time at the local library and that's why it means a lot to me. And of course you can still use the library if you have money. <laughs> it's good to have a library for everyone. And I know, you know, people with kids spend a lot of time at the library and just we want to support the library ecosystem. And the more we are positive about it with our readers and with each other and in the community, libraries will accept indie author books over time. We just need to educate. And people often ask me, how do I get my books into libraries? And as I say to you guys, tell your readers to go to their library app and go to their library and ask for your books. That's the way we're going to change the world, my friends. Yes. Oh, and I also I wanted to say I was thinking back to the, my library days and I definitely binged the Shannara books by Terry, Brook, Terry Brooks. So the Sword of Shannara and all of those that was fantasy years and then and other kinds of fantasy. I also remember discovering the Mills and Boone section in my teenage years. <laughs> so yes, you can get your ebooks into libraries with Drafter Digital and uh, yes, yeah, so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon and uh, especially if you're continuing or increasing or your pledge or coming back during this difficult time and I know many of you if you can't do that, you also spread the word about the podcast, so I appreciate that. Thanks to new and returning patrons this week, Karen Murray, Max Chamberlain and Carolyn Berry. You can support the show for just a couple of dollars a month, less than a coffee a month or a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous. And I do drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> You'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which will be coming out this week as this goes out. So that will be coming. You'll also get 10% off my online courses, including your author business plan, which is actually turning out to be my most popular course. <laughs> you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Here's a word from Draft to Digital, and then we'll get into the interview. Hey, this is Kevin Thompson from Draft to Digital. So we love helping authors build and grow their author careers. That's why we started our monthly free webinar series, Draft to Digital, Ask Us Anything. Each month, three DDD experts answer your questions live and offer what we know about the indie author business. And don't worry if you can't make it at the time. We record each webinar and make it live via YouTube and Facebook, as well as on our blog. 
And as an added perk, each month we open up the lines for authors to schedule a free one-on-one author consultation with someone on our team. Slots are limited, so this is only open to the live attendees, but we'll do our best to chat with you and answer your burning questions, so tune in. RSVP for the next Ask Us Anything when you go to drafttodigital.com slash live. That's draft2digital.com slash live. Michael Leron is the author of 45 books spanning science fiction, fantasy, poetry, and nonfiction. He's a YouTuber, podcaster, and professional speaker, and is also the US ambassador and outreach manager for the Alliance of Independent Authors, where he co-hosts a show with Orna Ross on self-publishing advice. His books for authors include Be a Writing Machine, Mental Models for Writers, and A Hundred Welcome, Michael. Hi, Joanna. It's great to be back. Oh, yeah. I'm so thrilled to have you back on the show. Now, you were on the podcast back in 2016. I can't believe it's been so long. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's time has flown. Oh, it totally has. But we, we talked back then around video marketing. So tell us, uh, give us an update. How have things changed for you since 2016? And what does your author career look like right now? My author career looks completely different than the last time I talked to you. It's really quite remarkable. When I talked to you in 2016, I think I had maybe 15, 16 books. Now I've got nearly 50 and my YouTube channel has grown exponentially. I have a YouTube channel. It's called Author Level Up. And every Friday I publish a video on how to help writers master the craft of writing. Now, I don't hold myself out as an expert. I'm still learning, but I, I try to share transparently my journeys and what I'm learning to be a better writer. And so I do writing craft videos, writing advice videos, writing app review videos, and we have a lot of fun doing that. And YouTube has just been a amazing Swiss Army knife for me in my career. I, when I first started in 2014, I thought it was going to be an utter failure. I didn't really think anyone would watch it. And it was one of those things where you look back on it. It's like, wow, it completely changed the course of my career. And YouTube is the reason I was on your show for the first time, because I had some videos that you saw for the first time. Just recently, this past month, I got invited to speak at the annual Writer's Digest conference because the editor in chief happened to be on YouTube one day and she saw one of my videos. And so it uh, has ensured that I am always in demand with public speaking events, which helps with my book sales. And I've released some books since the last time we talked. And it's just been a really, really fun ride for me. Well, that's so interesting because, of course, this podcast I credit for being part of my business and bringing in multiple streams of income. So are you a full-time writer at the moment? And what are your streams of income? I'm not a full-time writer yet, but my biggest streams of income are from from eBooks and audio. Audio is my big bright spot right now. Also, YouTube and affiliate income. Those are my big, big streams right now. I've got some other ones uh, like courses and things like that, but those are my big streams. Can I ask what your day job is? Yes, I am a consultant at a Fortune 100 insurance company here in the United States. Wow. So I have nothing to do with writing at all. When I go to work, I do not have my writing hat on. So it's uh, interesting how I have to switch constantly between both of those. 
Wow. But also you have written that many books while also having a demanding day job. And I used to be a consultant as well. So I know that you have to work decent hours. It's not like, oh, I just clock off. So that's incredible that you've managed to achieve so much while still working a day job. So I want to get into it then because your book, Be a Writing Machine, is a bit about this. And I'm fascinated by an early line in the book, which says 30 to 40 percent of my writing is done on my phone. So what does that mean? <laughs> yes. So a, a lot of people ask me about this because I, I say that I write on my phone and I usually say it casually because I, I think that people know what, what I mean. It's amazing how people still don't know what that means. So I had to do it because of necessity. So a, as you said, it, I work a lot of hours in my day job. I, I have a young family, so I'm married. I have a six-year-old daughter. I've got a puppy, a pet rabbit, and I'm also in law school right now, believe it or not. So I'm taking law school classes in the evenings. Oh and my so goodness. <laughs> I'm just a glutton for punishment, I, I guess. So I started writing on my phone because I had to do it out of necessity. I, I realized one morning that if I didn't do something, my work counts were just going to keep dropping and dropping and dropping. And so I had to figure out a way to continue writing at the pace that I like to write at. And so I found out about Scrivener iOS. So I downloaded Scrivener iOS and Ulysses iOS, and I've used those to write in the cracks of life. I had a friend that said that once. And so I've learned how to write on my phone and write novels, like actual novels on my phone while I'm in the backseat of an Uber car, while I'm in the, the waiting room at the doctor's office, while I'm standing in line at the grocery store. And all those little writing sessions it might be two or three minutes at a time, they add up in a really, really big way over the day. And I've done the math that about 30 to 40% of my, my time writing comes from my phone. And that's because I've reclaimed time during the day that I would not normally have been able to write. Well, I've got to ask you more about this. Okay, so uh, Scrivener on the iOS. So I have, I now have Scrivener on my phone as well. But what I am concerned about is the syncing between the phone version and the one I use on my desktop. Have you had any issues with syncing? Every once in a while, there there will be an issue with syncing. It, it's it's it usually goes away. So Scrivener, they've got on their forums, they've got a lot of robust resources to help you with that if that ever becomes an issue. But I found that the syncing on Scrivener isn't as much of a problem for me as it might be for other people. But that's just kind of my personal experience. I kind of got around it by I have a, a copy of Scrivener on my phone that I use on Dropbox. I just put it in a special. This is my phone version. And then I copy and paste anything I did on my phone. But I'm really using mine for writing prompts for dictation while I'm out walking. But you are you're actually typing with your fingers and thumbs into the Scrivener file. Yes, all fingers and thumbs. <laughs> All fingers and thumbs. And I, I usually will start in the very more in the very early morning because I like to wake up about five, five thirty in the morning and, and write while my daughter's asleep. And I'll write on my desktop. And then when I go to work on breaks, I'll just sync and then I can pick up where I left off. And so you write fiction and nonfiction. Are you finding that the words so you said you write novels on it? Do you find that particular things are easier to write on your phone? When I first started, it was really hard because it was like, well, I, I feel like I have to have a keyboard when I'm writing a novel, right? I, I feel like I just have to have a, a computer in front of me when I'm writing my books for writers. But I learned really quickly to just to adjust my mindset just a little bit. And now it's almost like 
you, you can learn to exercise in five to 10 minutes a day. I, I've just learned that when I pull out my phone, I just get into that mindset of writing and it's almost like a seamless transition, but it took me a few weeks to really get used to it though. I think that really is a superpower, especially when you're as busy as you are. But also I I agree in terms of these little moments. I think I certainly feel now I I'm like, oh, well, I need at least an hour to sink down into whatever frame of mind I need to write fiction. But that uh, and that may be an excuse, (laughs) but it also that doesn't stop me doing nonfiction, for example, or other things that I might want to to write about. So I think that's a really good tip. Anything else in Be a Writing Machine that you particularly find is helpful for people? Yeah, the big thing with Be a Writing Machine is just all about mindset. It's that your biggest enemy when you're writing a book nine times out of 10 is going to be yourself. And if you can learn to get a handle on your fear, you can get a handle on your writing career because I forget who said it. It's everything you want in life is on the other side of fear. If you can tame that critical voice, as Dean Wesley Smith likes to say, then you can pretty much control your own destiny and you can become prolific and you can do just about anything you want to do if you can silence that voice in your head. So what are the types of fears that you have had to face personally and, and how have you overcome them? Yeah, fears of self-doubt is is the big one. You know, when you, first, when you write your first book, your first book is is really, it encompasses your your hopes and your fears in many ways. And I my first book didn't do very well. And so I thought, oh, you know, should I should I keep doing this or should I not keep doing it? And I just had to learn that at the end of the day, this is what makes me whole. Like I love writing. Writing for me, when I sit down every day, I'm just having so much fun when I do it. And when I'm not doing it, I'm miserable. And so even if I do publish a book that doesn't do as well as I want it to do, that doesn't mean that it's not going to do well forever. It could just be that it's not the right book for the readers at this time. And when you think about it like that, then it just in- inspires you to just keep stepping up to the plate and just keep swinging the bat. And eventually you're going to hit something and it's going to be, it's going to be a good thing for your mental health as well. So your books, are they generally short? Cause you have so many books now. Uh, are they shorter books? I, I definitely found be a writing machine is, is concise, but as is packed full of value. So is a fantastic short book for writers. What kind of length are you writing? Yeah, for my nonfiction, they usually, my nonfiction books usually end up between 20 and 50,000 words. So mental models for writers is closer to around 50, 60,000. My novels are usually in the ballpark of 40 to 60,000. I tend to write on the short side. That's just kind of how my brain is wired. No, me too. My full-length novels are around 60,000. I like reading books at that length as well. So you mentioned the mental models for writers there. What are some of those mental models? A mental model is, very simply put, a framework of thinking that you can use. You can almost put it on like a hat. So whenever you have a problem that you're facing, whether it be in your writing life or in your marketing or in your business, you can take this idea, put it on, and see the world through the lens of this concept. A great example of a mental model is is the model of Hanlon's razor, which basically says that never ascribe to malice what could be ascribed to incompetence. So maybe you get an email from somebody or you're coming across a situation where maybe you think someone is sabotaging you 
you think that that's the case. But if you put that model on, you think about that, maybe it has nothing to do with malice. Maybe it's just incompetence, right? And, and if you operate from that assumption, then it changes how you, how you deal with the problem and it prevents issues from further issues from becoming bigger. For example, I have another model in the book. It's one I, I, I've, I've just kind of experienced myself, which is the, the model of micro focus. So the United States Navy SEALs, they go through some of the most intense, rigorous training you can think of. And the dropout rate in, in the basic training is pretty high. But the ones who succeed are the ones who adopt this focus of micro focus. So instead of focusing on getting through the boot camp, instead, when you're crawling through the mud with barbed wire fences over you and there's a thunderstorm and it's raining like cats and dogs, don't focus on getting out of boot camp. Focus on moving your arm and then move your arm again. And when you, if you apply that to a manuscript, when you're stuck in the murky middle of your book, that can help you power through and give you... I like the idea of the mental models. I also think another way of thinking about it is, like you say, kind of putting on a, a hat. And one of our hats is the creative hat. And another hat needs to be the publisher hat. And the other one might need to be, for example, the marketing hat, which many authors obviously resist. So I, that's good. Like challenging yourself to shift into a different mental model can change your perspective on the situation, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I work in insurance. And so I have to deal with a lot of problems in a very right-brained and analytical way every day. I found that when I'm dealing with marketing and business issues, that a lot of those lessons that I learned in the corporate world, they're easily transferable. And there's this idea that uh, James Clear writes, James Clear is uh, someone who's written a lot about mental models. It's this concept of liquid knowledge that you can take knowledge that you learn from other areas of your life, liquefy it and bring it over into the writing life. So you could do the same thing with ideas from science and ideas from mathematics and ideas from biology and psychology with persuasion and influence. And you can take ideas that uh, researchers and, and people who have been famous and, and made lots of breakthroughs and, and who, super successful, you can take their concepts and apply it to your writing and apply it to your writing life. Mm. And also having a sort of fundamental belief that you can change your mindset and you can change things about your life. I mean, sure, there are things that are difficult to change or impossible to change, but if you change your mindset, you can focus on a different angle of, of the way it is, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, your mind is the biggest obstacle. People get stuck in a theater of their own minds. They think that they can't do something or they think that uh, maybe they're not good enough or maybe they're feeling inadequate. And if you can just silence that, you can write your own ticket in life. Yeah. And if you can't silence it, sometimes you just have to live with it, like running next yeah. to you and just to ignore it a bit. But I think another one of these mental models is for me, I've always been someone who likes to be independent. And I feel like the model of self-publishing. So we obviously were both in the Alliance of Independent Authors and we both do podcasts there. And the Alliance of Independent Authors is all about empowering authors 
as creatives to run their own business, to take charge of their author career. And the word self-publishing or independent author is an empowering word that means you're in charge of your author career. And I feel like some people have a mental model, which is self-publishing is second rate. Self-publishing is what you do if you can't get a publisher. Self-publishing is full of terrible books. And even those two views on the self-publishing world are still prevalent. And of course, you and I live in the empowered version of that. But is that what you found coming onto the book about 150 self-publishing questions? What do you see as the mindset issues around even the idea of self-publishing? That's such a great point when you said that uh, people have negative mental models, right? Because th that's so true. There are there's so many negative roadblocks that we tell ourselves. And I wrote a book with Ally. And the book is called 150 Self-Publishing Questions, and I, I, I co-host the member Q&A podcast with Orna. We tend to get a lot of the same questions over and over again. What I suggested to Orna one day is, well, we have all these questions that come in, and they're kind of all the same. Why don't we take these questions and put them into a book? And let's take this book and let's use it as a, a marketing vehicle for Ally. We did that and, and we tried to make the book as comprehensive as we could. And one of the things that I was experiencing as I was writing, it did keep coming back to mindset because as you said, self-publishing is empowering. Everything that you do, every decision that you make is up to you. And for you and I, that's empowering, that's freeing. But for some people that can be really scary. And so how do you take, how do you take the path of self-publishing and make it structured so that a writer that maybe isn't familiar with all the terms or familiar with all of the things that they need to be thinking about, how do we give them the information that they need so that they can start to adopt that model of empowerment? And they're definitely that first step is taking a leap. And sometimes people have really technical questions and it's just because they're afraid of even clicking a link and reading how to do it or even just trying it. I feel that people who are tech phobic but particularly probably struggle a lot with <laughs> self-publishing. But I did want to ask you, uh, I mean, we're not going to answer all the basic questions here. They can read the book. Uh, they can listen to your show with Orna. But I did wonder, is there anything that you were like, wow, that is a surprising question. I did not expect that. Or anything that challenged you personally in the book? Yeah, the biggest challenge for me was whittling down the number of questions that we had. So there were... I think I maybe started off with like 500 questions and I was like, no, I can't do this. This is too much. I'll, I'll pull my hair out. I'll get gray hair. I'll be 60 years old by the time this book comes out. It's too much to manage. What surprised me that there were a lot of questions around cover design. And so that is actually one of the largest sections in the book. So we go through from the start of, I need a book cover all the way until you get to the final piece where the designer delivers you a finished copy. Well, there are questions around, do I need to get a contract signed with my cover designer? Or does the cover designer own the copyright or do I own the copyright? And so it was a lot of fun for me just really digging deep into that particular topic because th th there were a lot of questions around that. But Ally sits on so much data. It's, it's really remarkable. If you look at all of the podcasts that they do, all of the blog posts that they do, there's just a goldmine of data there. And it was a lot of fun for me to be able to figure out what the greatest hits were and incorporate those into the book. My little tip here is don't use papyrus fonts. <laughs> Please, no, please, no, no papyrus, no, no comic sans, no wingdings. Uh, readers will come to your house with pitchforks and mobs. <laughs> and that, that is a fact. 
<laughs> it is. And you can really spot a self-published DIY cover from a mile off when you see some of those fonts. And, and it, it, But the thing is, the great thing is that we learn over the journey. And I was actually going to ask you this because I do have on my wall, actually, I say create, uh, I have create a body of work I'm proud of, 100 books by age 50. Now I'm 45 and I'm only at book 30. So I, I, I might struggle to reach that goal. But as someone with uh, nearly 50 books at this point, do you find that your fear around releasing a book is dramatically reduced because you have so many books? Like if, as you say, if one doesn't quite hit when you release it, does it matter when you have such a big backlist? No, it doesn't matter. I don't care anymore. Like I, I just, I write the books that inspire me. And if they do well, great. If they don't, it's okay. Like we talked about be a writing machine. I wrote that book purely because of therapy. I, I had some issues with my biological father. I talk about this in the book and he, he abandoned me when I was young and I tried to reconnect with him and he didn't want anything to do with me. And so when I wrote that book, it was because I was hurting. I never thought in a million years that book would be one of my best-selling books in my catalog. And so I learned after be a writing machine, I don't care what happens <laughs> when I publish a book because who knows what can happen. And so uh, like right now, for example, I, I, I love to live on, I love to live on the line of this book idea is either going to be really awesome or it's going to be ridiculous and it's going to be a complete failure. That's where I love to live. So I'm writing a book right now called the Indie Author Atlas. And it's basically, it takes all of the, the things that an author needs to know, and it turns them into fictional locations, like a travel guide. It's inspired by the Lonely Planet travel guides. And um, if the book succeeds, cool. If it doesn't, that's okay. I had a lot of fun writing it. And that's, that's what it's all about. It is. It is. And uh, I'm someone who buys any book with the word Atlas in the title. <laughs> so I'll be getting that one. And of course, I have yeah. my book, Books and Travel podcast. I love travel. So that is a great idea. And I do think that your authenticity in your book and also on your YouTube channel, because let's face it, YouTube is very hard to not be authentic when you're on video like people humans can tell if there's some bs you know they can tell if you're not being real or not and your youtube channel i've also obviously had a youtube channel for a long time and i think you get more and more real the more videos you do because any sort of stiltedness disappears doesn't it over time so on on book marketing in particular do you recommend YouTube for authors or what are the types of authors that YouTube suits? Because it's not for everyone, is it? No, it's, it's not for everyone. I, I've taken a really weird stance and I, I've told people that if you are an introvert, YouTube is probably something you should consider. And people ask me, why, why would you say that? I mean, you're putting yourself on camera, you're putting yourself out there. And I respond by saying, yes, I recognize that you've got to put yourself on camera. You're introverted. It's, it's a challenge. But look at me. I'm a textbook INTJ on the Myers-Briggs scale. I'm usually not somebody who's going to mingle in a crowd. <laughs> I'm usually standing by the wall drinking a soda or something at a party. But the great thing about video is that it, 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 each video you make is almost like a little employee for you. And it goes out and it advocates on your behalf while you're sleeping. So you're engaging with people, but you're doing it through video. So you make a video once and people are interacting with it. And that's the, like the best tool for an introvert, in my opinion. Now, in terms of genres, I think nonfiction is, is perfectly suited 
for YouTube. If you write anything that is, is educational and if you can make it entertaining, I think YouTube, you can, the, the, the world is your oyster there. And I think fiction writers can succeed there too. You have to be a little careful with fiction because you don't want to spam your books too much, right? But I do think that there's something to be said about documenting your writing journey on YouTube and doing it in video because most people don't do it. And so if you do do it by virtue of doing it, you're going to stand out. And do you have tips on author level up about how to do YouTube for authors? Yes, I do have a video on that. The big thing is don't be too afraid of what you look like on camera. Just make sure that the background behind you looks pleasant. It's not too cluttered. Uh, make sure that uh, you've got adequate lighting. You know, if you can record by a window and just make sure your sound is good because the sound will make or break the video. And you can get started by shooting videos on your phone. That's how I started. And the phone has got so much better. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, I started out way back then with a, a flip cam back when they were the thing. And over the years, I now just use my MacBook Pro camera. You can get as technical as you like, but I, I agree with you. Just start with what you have. And and I think the other thing is funny. You mentioned James Clear. I have so many things on my wall, but one of them is a quote from him about habits. And he says, the results of our efforts are often delayed. And uh, I have that there because we often want immediate results. And I feel like with YouTube, you know, people are like, oh, but I put up a video and nobody came. And like you said, your channel has grown over time. So what are your thoughts on how long does it take to build up an audience? Where, you know, as an author, as a YouTuber, how long are we talking about? Yeah, for YouTube, it, it just depends on how, how hard you're willing to work, honestly. With YouTube, in order to really start accelerating your audience, you, you really want to have at least a thousand subscribers and four, four, I think it's 4,000 watch hours per year. That's when you can start monetizing your channel. That's when you start getting a little bit better visibility. So if you did a weekly YouTube video and you looked at all of the ways to maximize your reach, maximize your visibility, get good thumbnails, that's really important on, on YouTube. You probably could get there in a year if you wanted to get to a thousand subscribers, it's not always that easy. Um, if you're an author trying to build a community on YouTube, the, the number one key is what's going to make you different compared to everyone else out there. And particularly if you do it on writing or if you do it on travel or if you do it on health and nutrition, there's a thousand other channels out there. And so understanding your why on why you're doing it and having a crystal clear message on what it is that you're going to offer your audience, that's going to help you. And it's not always easy. You don't always find out what it is that your audience wants when you start. So you've got to be willing to start and then be willing to pivot when your audience starts giving you feedback on what they like and don't like about your content. Yeah, that is true. Um, and I went to audio only or mostly audio only earlier this year. I lose track of the years, but essentially that was very interesting because I had thought I would pull off YouTube altogether. But what I've discovered is a lot of people will listen to an audio only uh, YouTube video because a lot of people, that is how they consume content is just on YouTube. So even if you're doing audio only, I think it's still worth worth doing. Oh, that's a great point. And there's a lot of people that listen to YouTube while they're working. Maybe they don't listen to a podcast app. Maybe they have YouTube on the background while they're at work. I, I've got a lot of people who tell me that that's how they listen to a lot of my videos too. 
Yeah, exactly. So it, you are not your market is the thing. I never, I don't even go on YouTube much at all. However, talking of your videos, you made a really incredible video talk, talking about your personal thoughts as a black author. Now we're recording this in the summer of 2020, towards the end of August 2020, as we record this, we're still in the pandemic. And we've also had global marches for Black Lives Matter over recent months. And obviously, I want people to watch your video on your thoughts in full we're not going to get into it in entirety it's a very powerful video and I, I thank you for posting it but I, how can we as the independent author community empower and support authors of color well thank you for asking me about that video I really appreciate it and I I felt like I had to say something right around the time where things were getting pretty bad after the George Floyd murder the best thing that the community can do is if if you write in a subgenre that doesn't have a whole lot of representation Maybe there is representation and just look for those authors. And, and when you see them, try to promote them and try to bring them along because the, the hardest challenge that authors of color and minority authors have is that they, they sometimes struggle with, to get visibility because there's, there's not as many people in the genre or subgenre that look like them. And so anything you can do to amplify their voice and, and, and make your readers aware of them is a win because when readers have more diverse choices, we all win. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree on that. I know a lot of authors have questions, but they feel like it would be difficult to ask or embarrassing to ask, or they don't want to be a bother. Maybe it comes to a character of color that they're writing in their book, or maybe they want to be more proactive, but they just don't know how to do it. And I believe this is now being called like being an ally, which is, you know, what also the Alliance of Independent Authors is, is called. If, if people do have those questions, can they approach authors of color and ask without worrying about being offensive? How how do we cross that boundary? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky question, right? Because I can't speak for every person of color. Some, 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 some of us don't mind it. You know, like me personally, I, I, I don't mind when someone approaches me and says, hey, would, would a black person say this or that? I mean, because to me, it's always coming from a good place, right? And I think we all benefit when we have books that portray people of color in a positive light. And what I tell people is it doesn't hurt to ask. If they say no, then you can find someone else. There's always someone in the community that's willing to help you get your story right. The worst thing you can do is write a book with a, a person of color, a person with a different skin color that's not you, and then get it wrong. So absolutely ask, and ask and you should receive. Yeah, my sister-in-law, who's Nigerian, I've seen her talk to people and they've said things and I've just thought, oh my goodness, how can you say that? But she talks about intent. So you can tell if the intent of someone is really seeking and being supportive and just trying to be better. And you can tell when someone's intent is negative. And I would say that to people listening as well. It, what is behind your intent in asking and is it helpful? <laughs> basically? Yeah, it, it, exactly. People that have the bad intents are not going to generally be the people that ask the questions. <laughs> yeah. That's my experience. Very good anyway. point. That's fantastic. So I wanted to ask you as we uh, come towards the end. So you said you have a six year old daughter. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. So I often think about the future. I self-published 12 years ago. So your daughter will be 18 in 12 years time, which is probably really scary. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm having the beginning of a heart attack here, Joanna. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's not go that far. Obviously, so much has changed. Your daughter was probably not even a glimmer in your eye 12 years ago. And now you have your child, you've got your multiple careers. What are you excited about in terms of what's coming next for Indies? What is going to change and uh, what are you excited about? Well, my daughter's best friend is the Amazon device in our house that begins with an A. <gasps> Wow. So it's it's unbelievable. She knows how to use it better than I do. And I consider myself pretty tech savvy. So I, I think that audio is, there's so much untapped potential. And you know this, I, I think that authors that have their books in audio and have good high quality audio products, I think are going to have a lot of opportunities. I read the other day, Amazon and Audible are now starting to get into the, the the podcast business. Spotify, I think, is trying to get into the audiobook business, I heard. And so you think about AI now with you know voice doubles, the episode you did with Mark uh, with the voice doubles. I mean, there's just so much opportunities that are going to be coming down the pike for audio. And I think that's how my daughter and, and, and her generation and generations to come are going to start thinking about audio and consuming content. So I'm really excited about that in particular. Wow. So does, what does she ask the, the device? Is it play my favorite song or is it read me a story? It's play my favorite song. She asks it to do math. She loves to ask it the weather. If um, her and I are uh, talking about something and she doesn't believe me, she'll ask the device to, to verify. <laughs> is, is, is it true that there are lions in Iowa? I, I was teasing her the other day, and then she's she's like, uh, I won't say the name because I don't want to trigger people's yeah, yeah. devices. But uh, uh, Annie, are there lions in Iowa? And they're like, according to my records, there are no lions in Iowa. And then she <laughs> pointed at me and said, ha ha, you're wrong. So technology, wow. right? <laughs> yes, but it's interesting because, so if I, we're watching TV and I'm like, oh, I want to check that. I'll check on my phone. So we were watching the series The Crown and I was like, who was Princess Alice? It was Prince Philip's um, mother. And I didn't know about her. And so I asked Google on my phone. So if your daughter's watching something, will she check that with the device? She will. She will. It, it's crazy. Mm. Like, it's almost like an extension of her hands. I mean, really, it's the only way I can Think about it. She knows how to use the Siri on my phone. She knows how to use the, the Google Assistant on my wife's phone. She's just a digital native and she's not even in kindergarten yet. That is incredible. You're at least a decade younger than me. <laughs> but what will she be doing in her 30s? It surely won't be YouTube. Will it be virtual reality, some kind of virtual reality side of it? It's things? hard to know. You know, my crystal ball's broken. When the pandemic started, the governor shut down my crystal ball repair shop. I, I just don't know. I, I think virtual reality is, is really early, but there's only one thing I know for sure, and it's that no matter what it is that my daughter ends up doing to consume her content, I think that the authors of today, we've got to stay nimble. And we have to continuously be thinking about ways that we can get our stories into other people's hands. And that might be one day, I think you said it on one of your shows recently, that might be that the book is not the prime, our primary vehicle of creation in the future. We might have to start thinking of audio first or of virtual reality first or writing stories for games or apps. And I think if we can stay nimble and focus on that, and learn how to adapt even when we don't have to right now, even when it's slightly uncomfortable, that's going to be the key to a long, sustainable writing career. 
That is a great way to end because I'm totally with you on that. So where can people find you and everything you do online? Yes. Well, if you're interested in my writing advice, you can find everything I do at authorlevelup.com. It's got uh, links to all my YouTube videos, all my writing books, all my podcasts on writing. And if you're interested in my fiction, you can find that at michaelleron.com. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michael. That was great. Thank you so much, Joanna. It's been my pleasure. So I hope you found the interview with Michael useful today and also empowering in terms of your mindset. I definitely agree with Michael when he said, if we stay nimble and learn how to adapt, even when we don't have to right now, because it's not like a desperate situation right now, even when it's slightly uncomfortable and we feel out of our comfort zone, that's going to be the key to a long, sustainable writing career. And this attitude, I think, is critical. I often talk about this, obviously. And it's not just for our writing career. I feel more and more this is for the rest of our lives, too. The pandemic is accelerating a lot of societal and cultural change. And the 2020s, for sure, it was always going to be a disruptive decade, but I feel like it is going to be more disruptive than perhaps we know. And as ever, I intend to the changes and not drown in them. So I hope you will come along and enjoy the journey with me and also check out uh, Michael's YouTube channel and, and what he's doing because it's fantastic. So next week, I have an interview about your creative business brand with Pamela Wilson, when we'll be talking about how images work with your words to create to communicate brand, tips for choosing a niche and how to choose one that actually makes some money, what happens when you want to pivot, business models for non-fiction authors, and also if you are pivoting, how to do it without burning the bridges of what you've already built and much more. So that is coming up next week. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>